0: Thanks for tuning in. Hazel was in her early 20s when she met Hans Halverson. Although there was a 50 year gap in their ages, the couple married and had two children Roy, born in 1940, and Arthur in 1942. Life in Tennessee wasn't easy for the Halverson family. Hazel wasn't the best mother and neglected her sons. Arthur grew up, headed west, and landed in Long Beach, California. He married Amalia and they raised her two daughters. Amalia's parents lived next door and loaned the couple money to buy a house. Arthur made a living any way he could. He bought and sold stolen equipment, offered to make vehicles disappear for owners that couldn't afford to pay for them, and he started his own business, distributing soda pop. But rather than make money, it was mostly a front for his illegal activities. And any money he did make, he never paid a dime in taxes. Through his business, he met Eugene Layton, a former professional football player. At 38, he was six foot five and two hundred and seventy pounds. He owned his own roofing business and was also a coach for the youth football league. And got pop for the team from Arthur at a discounted rate. In nineteen eighty-one, they were about to lose their house, so Arthur filed for bankruptcy to stop the creditors from foreclosing. He drank occasionally, but around nineteen eighty-three. His alcohol consumption increased dramatically. He drank every day, whether it was whiskey, beer, or wine. He began experiencing memory issues, became belligerent, and swore unusual behavior for him. Although he was never violent towards Amelia or their daughters, he lashed out, throwing things around the house. Arthur did a deal with Eugene and sold him some equipment for $1,500, but Eugene didn't have the money. He eventually paid Arthur back, but it took quite some time, and Arthur wasn't happy about it. In 1984, Arthur purchased a gun, loaded it, and kept it in his truck. He then got a job driving a semi-truck for Hammett Vacuum Service. Within his first week, he spotted a business opportunity, a huge steel tank that he could dismantle and sell. But there was one small problem. It was full of toxic waste. So he approached the dispatcher of the company to see if he could work out a deal with the owner to dispose of it. But Arthur had an awkward way with words. He said that if the owner didn't pay him $10,000, he'd report him for illegal dumping Yoner wasn't interested in a deal with Arthur, and he lost his job. Arthur borrowed money from his cousin, but never paid him back. And because of that, his cousin took his own life. This weighed heavily on Arthur. One night he woke up screaming that someone was coming to get him. Then one day when his daughter gave him a smart response, he hit her with his fist. At 43, he was working seven days a week and hardly slept. He watched TV late into the night, slept for a couple hours, then got up at 4 a.m. and went to work. In January 1985, Arthur was at a bar when he tried to cash a $1,000 check. The bartender didn't know him and refused. Then Eugene, who was in the bar, vouched for him and Arthur got the cash. Arthur knew he didn't have the funds to cover it, but he felt Eugene deserved payback for the time he was slow paying him. But Eugene didn't let Arthur get away with it. He felt responsible because he'd vouched for him. So he showed up at Arthur's house to make sure he paid his debt. Eugene managed to get $400 out of him that day and over time, Arthur paid back the rest. One day, Arthur spotted two men in his yard and accused them of stealing pot from his truck. He pulled out his gun and told them to put it back, or he'd blow their heads off. They fled and reported him to police. Arthur still had possession of their house, but was behind in the mortgage payments, He and his wife borrowed $15,000 and handed over the deed to their house as collateral. Arthur's plan was to sell off equipment he had in three storage units that he figured he could sell for half a million bucks. The 10% interest on the short-term loan was going to cost $1,500. He had exactly one month to repay the loan or lose their house. The financial pressures were mounting. On Sunday, March 31st, Arthur was up by 7 a.m., ready to make a deal. Court records reported that he drove his old yellow pickup truck to a restaurant out by the airport. There, he bought two stolen generators. He dropped one off at his storage yard and the other at his house. Then Arthur headed to the Anchor, a local bar, to make another deal. He had a lead on stolen gold and met with a man named William. They worked out a $40,000 deal. The plan was for them to kick in $4,000 for a sample. Then they'd get the gold check to make sure it was a quality William was looking for. Arthur didn't have $2,000 for his share in cash, but he did have checks made out to him. He tried to cash them at the bar, but the bartender wasn't authorized to cash that amount without the manager's approval. While they waited for the bartender to reach the manager, the men downed numerous glasses of whiskey, beer, and played pool. They bet on the games, and at one point, Arthur owed William $9,000. But William told them to forget about it because Arthur was so intoxicated. Arthur was unable to get his checks cashed and William left the bar without buying the gold. Then a man named Roberto Martinez stopped by the bar, a thief and employee of Arthur's. He was there to drop off an air compressor in Arthur's truck. At 5:30 p.m., Arthur left the bar. He stepped outside in the cold winter air and suddenly felt dizzy and realized He'd had a lot to drink. He walked to his truck and noticed that the air compressor wasn't there and automatically assumed Roberto had stolen it. So he decided to drive to his home. He pulled his truck up to an apartment building on Santa Fe Avenue, where Roberto lived with his wife, her sister, and husband, Benjamin Acala. Twenty-year-old Benjamin was in the yard planting flowers when Arthur approached him. He asked for Roberto. Benjamin replied that he wasn't home. Arthur turned and headed to his truck. He reached under the seat and pulled out his loaded handgun, returned to Benjamin, and said he was going in the house to look for Roberto. Benjamin agreed and headed towards the door with him. Without warning, Arthur used a gun to strike him on the head. Benjamin opened the screen door. Arthur fired his gun. The first shot narrowly missed him. Benjamin wasn't so lucky with the second shot. It hit him in the back near his right shoulder. He fell to the ground, unconscious. Arthur hopped in his truck and sped away, headed north on McDonough Street. A mile down the road, he was near Hammett Vacuum Service when he spotted Calvin Ferguson and his brother Delton. Calvin leased his truck to the company and was there to work on it. Arthur slowed and yelled out the window at Calvin. He walked toward the yellow pickup truck. Arthur raised his gun and fired hitting Calvin in the face. Delton looked up to see his brother on the ground and Arthur speeding away. Arthur had gone less than a quarter of a mile when he spotted Vicente Perez, who was driving towards him in the opposite lane. As he pulled up beside him, Arthur noticed a long radio antenna and stickers for Neighborhood Watch and 911. Arthur panicked. That antenna meant that there was a two-way radio in the car, and if he heard the gunshot, he'd call police. Both vehicles were stopped and the drivers within feet of each other. When Arthur pulled out his gun, extended his arm, and shot once, hitting Vicente on the side of his neck, his car careened through the intersection and crashed into a fence with its motor rubbing and tires spinning. Vicente was slumped behind the driver's wheel, his foot still on the gas pedal. Delton ran to his vehicle and hopped in just as Arthur made a U-turn and drove past him. He looked over and recognized him and noticed a cold look on his face. Delton parked his car behind his brother's body, then ran to a phone inside and called police. They arrived to find both Calvin and Vicente dead at the scene. Calvin was 44 and Vicente 46. Court records indicated that Arthur then drove to Eugene's home. It was now 7 p.m., He walked up to the front door and knocked. Eugene's 10-year-old daughter and 13-year-old son were home. His son answered the door. And advised his dad who was in the shower. Arthur asked to see Eugene. So his son walked to the bathroom and advised his dad who was in the shower. that someone was there to see him. Eugene threw on shorts and a t-shirt and headed to the front door when he spotted Arthur. He was surprised to see him. He didn't even know that Arthur knew where he lived. He told him to hang on a minute and he'd get dressed. Eugene turned and started down the hall to his bedroom when he had an eerie feeling. He turned to see Arthur following him. Eugene asked him what he was doing and Arthur responded by raising his gun. And told him, "You're dead, Jean, You're dead." He stepped towards him, then shot him in the chest. Eugene fell backwards into a wall. He screamed for his children to get out of the house. Eugene was reaching for Arthur when he fired, shooting him in the chest a second time. Using all his strength, he pushed Arthur and he fell backwards into a china cabinet, smashing a glass pane. The two men were laying on the broken glass. Eugene managed to pin Arthur down by his throat and grabbed his gun. He pulled the trigger, but it didn't fire, so he dropped it and grabbed a piece of broken glass. He pulled the uneven shard across Arthur's throat and left him for dead. Eugene, fueled on adrenaline, crawled out the front door, across his lawn, and to the sidewalk where paramedics had arrived. Benjamin, Eugene, and Arthur were all taken to the hospital. Arthur had shot four men in cold blood within one hour. Arthur's blood was tested for its alcohol content. It was 0.154%. For a man of his size, that meant he'd consumed at least ten drinks at the bar. At 8 p.m., a doctor called Amalia to tell her that Arthur had been stabbed in the neck and was in critical condition. Arthur survived along with Benjamin and Eugene. He was charged with two counts of murder for Calvin and Vincente, two counts of attempted murder for Benjamin and Eugene. Arthur was not able to plead guilty by reason of insanity because a psychiatrist found he knew what he was doing and that it was wrong. Arthur's trial began in August 1987. The news pilot described how at the trial Arthur took the stand. He was thin and his hair was graying. He spoke with a slow southern accent He admitted to shooting all four men and said he didn't know why, except for Benjamin. He felt he was lying about where Roberta was, but claimed that he didn't intentionally shoot him. Rather, he merely pointed the gun at him, and it went off. A psychiatrist testified on behalf of the defense. He said that at first, when he interviewed Arthur, he found him a little odd, but his impression of him was positive. But as the psychiatrist continued to ask more delving questions, Arthur's paranoia surfaced. He was no longer able to hide the fact that he was manic depressive and bipolar. It was discovered that Arthur came from a long line of family with mental illness. His mother and aunt both attempted suicide. His uncle and two cousins died by suicide and his two brothers and two cousins were diagnosed as psychotic. During the trial, he requested numerous times to represent himself, but was denied. He wanted to die. Arthur told the judge, send me to the gas chamber. The jury convicted Arthur for the murder of Calvin, and he was sentenced to life without parole but they were deadlocked on the sentence for Vasante's murder. A new jury was selected a year later to retry the sentencing phase. Arthur told the court that if he had to choose between life in prison without parole or the death penalty, that he chose death. The jury granted his wish and unanimously voted for the death penalty. Arthur also received 14 years for the attempted murder of Eugene and one year for the assault on Benjamin. On a side note, it turns out that Arthur was right about Hammett Vacuum Service. A month after the murders, the owner of the company was arrested for operating a massive illegal hazardous waste station. An informant had reported the illegal operation to police, And it was already under investigation when Arthur threatened to report it. In 2007, the California court tossed out Arthur's death sentence because he had been denied the right to represent himself. His sentence of life without parole for Calvin still stands. As of this writing. He is 80 years old and resides at the San Quentin Prison in California. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Dana Sue Gray. She shopped until she went bankrupt she lost her marriage her house cars boats and even her job and still she couldn't stop shopping so she murdered three women in cold blood stole their credit cards and went shopping if you are dying to hear more past episodes of murder in twenty are available for free at murder 20com dot com and on all major podcast platforms We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and Vaseline studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.